0: My first uh, encounter with an atheist was uh, in New Zealand in ni- 1982, my mother was born there, met dad in the war, got married, and then she moved to America not knowing anybody, uh, so in 1982, I, I'd seen my grandparents once from New Zealand, I'm named after my grandfather, her, her father, his name was David Watson Young, and uh, when I, we went, Debbie and I went with two of our, our oldest kids, because the other two weren't born yet, and my sister and her husband and my mom and dad. We went to see my grandmother in New Zealand. I'd never been there. And uh, we saw my grandmother many times during the three weeks we were there. I preached at a church there for a whole week. Uh, we had a big meeting there. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, And my Aunt Patty was married to my Uncle Watson who flew in World War II for Air New Zealand for the Allies and and he was one of my heroes and he had died years earlier when we got there. And uh, we sat down at the table with Patty, my Aunt Patty's daughter and her husband. And I'd never met her husband. I'd met the daughter many years earlier when I was a teenager. And we had all these people at this table eating lamb chops. If you go to New Zealand, you eat lamb. If you don't get that, that's okay. Uh, And we sat down, and Patty said, Everybody, I want to introduce David and Debbie for those of you who've never met them. And David and Debbie, this is our son in law, John. Uh, I know you've never met. John is an atheist, David. That's what she said. And she was Church of England and a believer, very uh, proper in her faith, if you know the Church of England. And then she said, uh, David is a preacher. John, you're an atheist. David, you're a preacher. We're gonna sit back as we listen to y'all talk. <laughs> okay. Thank you, my former favorite aunt. Uh, for, you know, thank you very much. So uh, awkward, you know, awkwardness is, was there for the next three hours. So finally somebody spoke. It was me, because I'm an extrovert. And I said, uh, so John, uh, welcome to the family mate, uh, uh, you are, should be honored, you're the first bona fide, real life atheist I've ever met face to face. Debbie kicked me at that time under the table. That always signifies that my attempts to be funny are failing miserably and you need to be quiet. That's why I walk with a limp to this day. Okay, so, she kicked me under the table and he said, oh, pleased to meet you, Dave. He said, uh, should I call you uh, reverend or the right reverend? And I said, no, don't call me the right reverend. I'm left-handed for crying out loud. What What are you thinking? And that's when Debbie kicked me twice. I said, could you tell me why you're an atheist? And he went on to give the classic atheistic argument against the existence of God, which is not just an atheist argument, it's a Christian argument, because a lot of people who used to be Christians have fallen away from God in their belief in God because of pain. And he said, if God is all loving and all good, and if God is all powerful, then he would want to stop all the suffering of this world. And he would do it. He would stop it. The, the evidence is out there that since he hadn't stopped it to this day, there is so much pain in this world. And quite frankly, he said, since the creation, uh, you're, you, you say the creation of the world, since time began, human life has been pretty miserable on this planet. So I don't know how you could believe in an all loving, all powerful God. And uh, that was my first confrontation, not confrontation, discussion with an atheist. I liked John, I liked his honesty. This question of why do you hurt me, God, has been on everybody's mind since the beginning of time, really. Since Adam and Eve fell in the garden and they were cast out and this whole fallen world started on the basis of sin, right? I mean, it started because of God's love, but then it morphed into sin and corruption I was reading statistics the other day that uh, since 1950 till 19, uh, I mean, 1850 to uh, 1800 to 1955, 80% of the world lived in extreme poverty. It's gotten better since then. Uh, And then I was reading that today there's 457 million kids that live in extreme poverty in our world. Why is there so much pain? I started to ask the question why do you hurt me God at that moment and then uh, but I'd really started before then when my parents uh, separated and had an awful marriage for four years and my life was just not very nice during my teenage years. My mom was getting drunk my mom and dad hated each other we moved to a new city I kept asking God why? Has anybody else asked God why? Three of you? (laughs) Nobody? If you haven't asked why, even you haven't been thinking, or you think it's wrong to ask the question why. So I started asking God, why do my parents hate each other? Why can't they love each other again? I prayed for them every night for four years. They did get back together. They had a marvelous marriage for the last 26 years. I praise God for that. My mom and dad are my hero, heroes. But we've been working with people for years now that they don't get back together and the kids are hurt, and then as we entered ministry, people would start coming to my office, I have this thing tattooed, if you have a problem, talk to me, even if I'm on an airplane and asleep, and even if I'm getting a haircut from a stranger, uh, people seem to just pour out their hearts. It's a blessing, and it's a curse, but it's a blessing. I wonder how God feels. (laughs) He's got about eight billion people. He knows their pain. I started asking that question, people started coming to my office, three or four main reasons, marriage problems, affairs, addictions, uh, grief, abandonment, and abuse. Hardly a week went by in my ministry uh, in the last 20 years when I was, a, you know, the, the preacher the, for a local church when they didn't say, um, they tell me a, an abuse story from their childhood. Why do you hurt me, God, is a question a lot of people have asked. What is the answer to the, John's question? How could an all-loving, all-powerful God let the pain continue and kids starving to death every day of the week, every minute of every hour of every day? How can you believe in a loving, powerful God? It's a good question. It's a, my first point this morning is it's a good question and a biblical question. When you look at scripture, you see how many people with their names, they have, like Habakkuk. Let's just take Habakkuk. You can't spell it or say it. I can't either, but two Ks, three Ks. Am I through? Was that that an alarm? Do I have to quit? Okay. So Habakkuk, just take the book of Habakkuk where he complains to God And he says, why, God, are you using the evil people to discipline your own people, people more righteous than they are? You're you're using these evil people to just destroy us? You can't do that, God. You shouldn't do that. God comes down and answers Habakkuk, you know, the first complaint. He answers him. Read the three chapters. You can read the whole book uh, this afternoon. And then he, God answers him, and I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe if I told you. So hang on. And then Habakkuk comes back and says, I don't like your answer. Have you ever had a friend that you argued with and you could say anything to? Have you ever had that? And and you were so close to each other, you got mad at each other sometimes. I had a youth minister, Craig Eckstein, that I worked with in Flint, Michigan. We would argue and fight. We loved each other like brothers. We still are close. And I'm telling you, (laughs) One day we got so mad at each other, he'd come in and say, your sermon stunk, Wah, rah, rah, you said this, you shouldn't have said that, you weren't sensitive to, it. and I went, Who, what do you know? When have you ever preached, right? Things like that. So he'd yell, 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 and then he'd go to his office, slam the door, and the argument was about our basketball games that he had hogged the ball and all that stuff. That was the real <laughs> basis of it, because we had church basketball every Sunday night after church, all these men came bloody noses, cussing, all that stuff. is great, great Christian fellowship. So uh, one Monday I told him, I don't like playing basketball with you. I don't like it that you are, uh, if you're on my team, you take all these threes, your percentage is about 1%. He said, oh yeah? and I went, yeah. And I said, and if I play against you, you gripe and complain and, and argue about the calls. And then probably two hours later, I come back to his office. We both are weepy. We hug, we're so sorry. I said, I'm so sorry you were wrong. You know, things like that, right? Yeah, have you ever had a friend like that? Habakkuk is talking to God like that friend. Isn't that amazing? So in scripture you have lament, and if you, there's notes about lament somewhere in this building. I, I, I passed them out yesterday to everybody that came, and, and many of you, of course, couldn't be there or wouldn't be there. That's Okay. But if you want more notes on lament, you you just Google lament in the Psalms by Walter Brueggemann, B-R-U-E-G-G-E-M-A-N-N. He has done so much work on lament in the Psalms and the lament in the Psalms. What Brueggemann says, and he's absolutely right, lament, it's all the way through the Psalms and all the way through Scripture. Habakkuk gives the lament. As he gripes back at God, God comes back and said, take your tablet, write it down, I'm going to give you the answer. Wait for it. And I am convinced that's a prophecy concerning Jesus. Because that is the answer. So anyway, uh, Brigham says that that lament enriches relationships with each other and with God. Because it makes the relationship with God a real relationship. It's not one-sided. All the great people of scripture, you look in scripture, 45% of the psalms are lament psalms. And there, it's crazy how it is. It's, it's just nuts. And, and, and I, I, you look at Psalm 44. Oh, my word. I got this. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? You think God forgets our misery? Yes or no? No. Is the psalmist lying? No. That's how he feels. He's in pain. We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. It's up to you, God, to do something about my pain and my misery, my grief, or whatever's going on in my life. It's up to you to do something about it. Don't you sleep all day. Get up. Rouse yourself. That's what that means. So you go through those, those, 40, those uh, 65 to 68 psalms that are lament, lament psalms, And you come to one conclusion, it is biblical, it is biblical, and it is right to say, I don't like what's happening. You take too many threes. I don't like playing basketball with you. And When our grandson died, I lamented, I lamented, and I said, I don't get it, and I don't like it. And then if we don't give ourselves permission to go there, to grieve, to express our honest heart to God, we are cheating ourselves of intimacy with God because intimacy with God is that God and me are, no, he's always above me, but through Christ, I have the right to go to him with anything. Do you say amen to that? Amen. I have a right to say, I don't like you right now. That's called lament. And great, greater people than me have questioned God and their names are in scripture, but the greatest lament is my Lord Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? If anybody should have known why God had to let him die and God willed him to die and Jesus chose to obey God and die, Jesus should have known. Because before the creation of the world, the plan was put into place. They had a, Jesus had a long time to adapt to the coming death that he was gonna die. But when he got to the garden, he hesitated. And I'm so glad he hesitated. He said, I don't know if I want to go through with the plan. I can hear God saying, well, we we talked about it 10 trillion years ago. You should have had time to get used to it. But you see, he didn't have time to get used to it because he had never died as a sinner on the cross. Peter in Matthew 16, I love this. Peter, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to go die and on the third day be raised. And Peter, y'all remember this? Peter said, perish the thought, Lord. Peter becomes God's counselor. <laughs> he said, perish the thought, Lord. I will not let you die. And Jesus said, well, then you get behind me, Satan. So he called one of his closest friends on earth, Satan. Because he said, you're trying to uh, do away with the will of God. And what he's saying is, there, nothing's going to keep me from dying. Nothing. And any attempt to keep me from dying... Is Satan's work, not God's. So, Jesus, why did you say, Father, uh, why have you forsaken me? Oh, God, oh, God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, If Jesus can ask God questions, I think we can. What do you think? My feelings about God go up and down. The more I'm honest, the more I dialogue, the more I grow close, because no matter what I say to God, no matter how I put it, like these other guys, God is still there, and he still loves me. And when I've heard Debbie with my words, and I go to her, and I say, I'm sorry, babe, and she forgives me, we're drawn closer together. So lament enriches our relationship with God and, and actually uh, helps our relationship with each other. So it's good to question. The second point this morning is, being God is more difficult than we think. You think it's easy being God? Anybody think it's easy being God? I used to think God had everything settled. He had all the lists down. Everything was according to his will. Everything's going to happen smooth. God's workload increased when he created us. Would you agree with that? Did your workload increase when you started having kids? Yes or no? Have you seen the, the TikTok, the little videos about moms and little kids? I keep, I keep sending them to my, our young daughter who has an 8-year-old, 6-year-old, 4-year-old, and the terror of all terrors, the terrorist, the 2-year-old. There's one that I saw yesterday. The mother's in the car. The kid is asleep in the back seat in, the, in the, their, 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 their little seat. And she says, oh, no, no, don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. And she just starts screaming. And I've heard our daughter scream like that 83 times. Your workload increased when you had kids. My workload, our workload, Debbie's workload really increased. When God created, he created out of a heart of love, and his workload increased so much in Genesis 6. He said, I regret that I made man. He saw the sin. He saw the evil in the hearts, and he couldn't believe it. And you said, that doesn't fit with my God that I grew up with, but it's in your Bible. Why did it ever make him? That's his heart talking. Our emotions come from our God. It's good that uh, we question because it's right. And being God is more difficult than we think. And so when we question, we got to get ready that we don't get all the answers. Romans chapter 11, it's it's this song, it's this, uh, this great quote that Paul gives The depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God says, oh, I need to repay you. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. There is no way we got all the answers. Some answers we will not know. We just can't know. Bruce Almighty was a movie. Anybody see that movie? Jim Carrey. Uh, Morgan Freeman played God. Pretty cool God. And uh, Jennifer Aniston was uh, Jim Carrey's uh, girlfriend in the movie. And then Steve Carell, or Carol, whatever your name, the office guy, he was one of the newscasters. Greatest theology in the world is found in, I mean, outside the book, right? <laughs> Bruce Almighty, because Bruce thinks God is messed up and uh, God should do a better job. And so Morgan Freeman, who plays God, comes down talks to him and says, okay, you got the job. You think it's easy, you take it. And so, so okay, Jim Carrey as Bruce starts being God and he starts answering yes to everybody's prayer. And then 10 million people rent the lotto. And firemen quit their job and policemen quit their job and farmers quit making crops and all chaos breaks loose, because he answered yes to everybody who thought they were gonna win a lot of money. The average uh, check for each lotto winner was $1.86 or something. Okay? It's so classic. And then Jennifer doesn't love him anymore, and he's hurt her, and he's trying to use all the God power to bring her back, to bring her back, and it doesn't work. For I know you don't like what I'm about to say, but God can't do everything. You say, yes, he can. God can't sin. Yes or no? He can't sin. God can't be tempted to sin. God can't force you to freely choose. If He forces you, you're not free. God cannot not make you five foot five and six foot five at the same time. Oh, He could use His power to make you grow a foot or shrink a foot, but see, it's a contradiction. It's 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 futile to even think like that. But I only say it to say. We think it's easy being God. Why didn't He stop the abuse? Why didn't He stop uh, my child from dying? Why didn't He stop the the drunk driver killing my child? Why didn't He stop it? And God's up there saying, "I wish I could. But if I stop it, if I stop all the pain, there is no love. There's no free choice. I'd have to. There's no life like we know." See, I don't understand all that. You think I'll ever understand it all? No, no. So, but it's good that I don't understand it all, for if I could understand all of God right now on this fallen earth, there would be no God. He would be the invention of our human brains. There is no way to understand it all. Point number three is but I got to understand some things. There has to be an answer that makes sense. You say, David, it won't make sense. God gave us a brain. And I disagree with that. It can make sense. Now, it doesn't all make sense. I say I have to have some sense of the nonsense. There's got to be something that I hold on to that I am so convicted of that does answer the problem to where there's pain, but there's still God, and God is still all-powerful, and he's still all-loving, and there's no flaw in God. I've got to be able to put those two together. And the Bible says we can put it together there is an answer. Our view of God should ever be evolving. We can never get to the end of our knowledge of God except when we get there, and I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven exactly. I'm kind of excited to go there. Have you ever wanted to go now? My wife and I have. We're not suicidal, but... Paul said it's so much better to be with Christ, but if he wants me to stay, I'll stay. But if I go, oh my, it's going to be so much better... So you see, Paul got caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, wherever it is, 2 Corinthians, he talks about in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. But I know what I experienced. And I got up to the third heaven and and I saw, heard things that are inexpressible that I'm not permitted to tell. And then he tells us he's ready to go because he knows that there's something else, it's real. And so I remember asking uh, questions, uh, my kids asking me questions. One day, uh, our daughter Sarah was about four or five and she was a big sports fan. And so we're watching the Houston Astros on TV. I grew up in Houston and it was my team and this was many years ago when they lost all the time. And and she said, Daddy, we're watching this game And she said, Daddy, does yelling at the TV help the Astros play better? She actually said that. And I thought, you just need to be quiet. I said, "Uh, well, yes, yes it does. Because I've been yelling at the TV for 20 years. But you can't understand it now, Sarah. Your mother never has understood it. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, there's questions. You just don't get it. Then there's serious questions. Why did Daddy leave? Not that Sarah asked, but many have asked, why did my daddy leave? Who is this other woman? Who is this other man that my mother left my daddy for? Could you please explain this to me? And we, we don't, if they're five or seven, it has to be age appropriate so we answer the best we can, right? But if we, if, we, if we went into detail about all of it, there's no way the kids can understand it. Have you ever been there? Well, God's our father. We're his children. Paul is basically saying, I, I've seen some things, experienced some things, I I'm not even permitted to tell you because maybe our brains will just explode, right? There's some things we just can't understand. But then the very same Paul comes back and the last point this morning is we have an answer. We can know the answer and we can bank it. We can put all our faith in the answer because it's as solid and true as we are sitting here today there is an answer a lot of things I don't get but listen to the Apostle Paul's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 we do however speak of wisdom among the mature verse 7 no we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have killed the Lord. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. I can't even even fathom it. I really don't understand how God could always be. I don't understand how he can hear a million prayers at once. I don't understand why there's so much pain in this world totally. But I know this, that the wisdom, the mystery that has been kept hidden has now been revealed, Paul says. And I want you to listen to this. These are the things God has revealed to us by a spirit. What things, Paul? Listen to this. The spirit searches all things, even the deep, things of God for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them in the same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God what we have received is not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us that's the mystery so what's the answer God knows there's pain God hates your pain God weeps at the grave of Lazarus though he's going to raise him in just a few moments because God sees the weeping. God saw the children of Israel in Exodus 3. His heart went out to them. He, he wept as it were. He sent Moses to try to get them out of that evil environment into the promised land. God responds. God weeps. God doesn't like it if you are abused. He doesn't like it if you are abandoned. He doesn't like it that your father left you. He doesn't like it that your child died. He doesn't like it. But he knows it has to be because of this fallen world. He knows it. So what makes sense of the nonsense? Well, in chapter 2, in, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he really rips into arrogance and pride. And one of the things I battle with is arrogance and pride. Anybody else battle with it? Boy, it's reek in the preacher world. It's just everywhere. everywhere but it's not just preachers. You know, we want you to like me. We want to speak for big churches. We want, you know, oh, God, forgive us all. God, forgive us all. Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence of speech, and I didn't come with my wisdom. I came with God's wisdom. And then he says this in chapter one, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter two, listen to this. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the answer. It's the cross and the resurrection. It makes sense of all the nonsense. When you look at the love of God, in Ephesians 3, I don't have time to really go into it because my time's almost up. I'm going I'm to go just about 40 minutes longer. Okay, so just <laughs> calm down. When you go to Ephesians 3, what what does Paul want us to know? In chapter 1, he wants us to know the hope that is there for us, the inheritance that's there for us. Do you know where you're going? Do you know where we're going to end up? Do you know we have eternal hope, not just temporary hope? And so he says, I want you to know this hope, and then he goes on in chapter 3, and I want you to know the, the love of God. And he calls it, it surpasses all understanding, but I want you to know it. So here's the love that surpasses knowledge and he wants us to have knowledge of it. And through God's spirit, we have knowledge. If you're a believer, if you've given your heart to Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God resides in you. And Paul says, don't grieve that Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance. And I'm tired of rejecting God's forgiveness. I'm tired of battling it. I'm tired of going to bed saying, am I saved or lost? I'm tired of it. And it's about time we grow up and we accept God's love and God's forgiveness, no matter what you've done. Do y'all agree with that? And so here's Paul, I want you to know this love. Paul killed Christians. God used Paul and changed him on that road and Paul became Paul, right, instead of Saul. And can you imagine his missionary journeys, going to churches and there's, there's a 30 year old there And Paul had held the coat of those who killed their mommy and daddy. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine him saying, I can never be forgiven? I've heard that all my life. Preacher, I just don't know. I'll never never forgive so-and-so, and I can never be forgiven for what I've done. Both statements are wrong. The Apostle Paul of all people should have been the one who said, I can never be forgiven. But he wasn't. He was forgiven. And he wanted us to know it. The height and the depth and the width of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know it. Maybe we need to go back to the cross. The cross is so powerful for so many reasons, but God willed to crush his son, Isaiah said. God willed it. I said this last time I preached to you. The, uh, God had one son, not three or two or four had one son, he had the only son, he didn't have a daughter evidently but he had a son that he conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. I don't get that either but I accept it. He had one son and the one son became sin for us when he hesitated in the garden and then on the cross when he said why have you forsaken me? The answer is he had a broken heart though he knew the will of God and he submitted to it. He had a broken heart because of his pain. He was about to go to darkness. I have been in a prison with sexual offenders with, I wasn't an inmate, I was visiting. And it was a man who had done awful things. I can't go into detail because maybe we have kids here. You can imagine it was sexual offense is. He, he was a pedophile. He was the most uh, gross, person I've ever sat with for four hours in a prison of nothing but sexual offenders, and uh, he was vile, he was wicked, but he had changed, and he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison, and he's dead now, and I, I got to talk to him, and I saw what the, 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 the death of Christ did for this man, uh, but this man was vile, so were probably 200 other men That passed us during the four hours. When our Lord died on the cross, he was more wicked than they were. You say, no, he wasn't. Yes, he was. He took every sin on him. Every sin, every sin, the most vile sin. I want to kill people who mess with kids. I really do. I'm not going to, that's wrong. But have you ever felt like that, that you'd be, you know? I've been there, man. I've been there with one that I wanted to kill. I didn't kill him, of course. I'm still here. But I wanted to. Our Lord on the cross became worse than they. You say, how? All I know is, and I don't get it, he bore all sins. That means he is ugly. He wasn't pretty on the cross. Let me tell you, he's scarred up, man. He's scarred up. They had beat him with their fists, they had spit on him, he had had the 30 lashes, he's completely naked on the cross, and he became ugly, for at least three, so ugly the face of the father had to turn away, and so ugly that the, the sun didn't shine, the sun that created the sun couldn't shine because the sun that created the sun is dying as a sinner. We don't understand the depths of his love, I don't know how we can the highest of high became the lowest of lows. The highest of high became the lowest of lows. C.S. Lewis said, nobody has ever fallen so far as when holy, 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 he didn't phrase it just like this, but as holy, holy, holy became sinful, sinful, sinful. Sinful to the 40th degree. Sinful to the millionth degree. More than all of us cause every sin ever committed is, slash, is just is splashed upon him. That's why he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went to the place of darkness he could only imagine. He couldn't feel it until he went through it. Even God can't feel something until he feels it. And so that's the love that Paul says, I want you to know. That's the love I want you to know. I told you this story, I think when I last preached to you, but most of you probably don't remember it. (laughs) And Many of you are not here. Our friend Dennis and Terry, we do Spark of Life, and Spark of Life is a ministry for those who grieve. And uh, I've got a book called Why Do You Hurt Me, God, that we gave out yesterday. And I want to say this because I really want you to read the book if you want to. Uh, the, the book's out there and back there if you don't have one. Uh, the cost is $20 if you have it, 10 if you have 10, 5 if you have 5. If you don't have the money, if you don't want to pay it, dime for it, just take the book. If you want to pay for somebody else, fine. Y'all get the deal, it's back there, there. Um, I wish I had time to go into more depths but we have dealt with so many losses and so many people that we have seen have hope again but it all goes back to the cross man it all goes back to a man hanging there and so Dennis and Terry lost a daughter to murder and uh, they have one daughter not they don't have uh, a bunch of daughters they have one daughter and she was killed by her husband and uh, When the police, uh, when they found out she was missing and they went to Memphis and they had everybody praying and they had 40 of their friends and relatives at the police station and all night long, they looked for her body, they didn't know she was dead. Her husband said she went for a walk and didn't come back. And so Dennis knew where she was jogging and walking and he had been with her on jogging many times and so he got there and he searched for hours on everywhere in Memphis he could think for his baby girl. And finally at two in the morning, the husband cracked and said he had killed her. And the detectives called Dennis and Terry and their son Casey into the other room and told them their daughter was dead and your son-in-law has confessed to killing her. And then uh, the shock, the tears, the screams, the hatred for their son-in-law all just enveloped them. And then Dennis said, I have to walk and tell the family, the two sets of grandparents who had lost a granddaughter and they didn't know it yet. Somebody had to do it. Dennis said, I'll do it. There's a long hallway between that room and the room where the relatives were. Dennis said, I'll do it. So he started walking down that hall. And, in the, and if you knew Dennis, very kind man, very calm man. He's completely different than me. <laughs> you know, I'm excitable. He's not. As he's walking, in shock and tears and disbelief, He looks up to God, and he says, God, you don't know what it's like to lose a child. And he stopped. God doesn't know what it's like. I think that's why he only has one son. That's my opinion. I think the story has to be so good, it jolts our senses. I think it has to be proven that he loves us. And when I want to run away from him, and when I don't like what he's done or not done, all I want to do all I do is go back into his arms. It's always there. I'll close with this, and then uh, Mark will come up. And if you have any prayer request, any grief, anything you need to pray about or talk to somebody, there'll be shepherds around the room. Got it? Okay. And look for Jesus goes to the synagogue to worship. He, they ask him to read from the scripture. He unrolls the scroll. He unrolls it to... Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. That's the God we serve. He knows about your problems, and he wants to bestow on you beauty instead of ashes.